We're recording. Yeah, I can see we are. Okay, let me move my little screen. Oh, I can't even see it behind the I can barely see it behind the newspapers. Are we good? All good. Everyone good. Zach, you good? All good. (coughs) (coughs) Recording, right? Yeah. (laughs) Got it open. Okay. Oh, that's good, actually. I didn't even intend the joke, but that's very good. Thanks, Ben. Hello and welcome back to the TLDR News Podcast. I'm Jack Kelly and this week I'm joined by Rory Taylor. Hello. And Zach Michaelis. Hello. And, and where are we? Well, is that like a rhetorical <laughs> question? Is that <laughs> the same room the, the, but a new studio? We're in a new studio. Yeah. We yeah. New studio. I mean, physically it's exactly the same. Mm. Yeah. But I, okay. you're on a sofa now. How does it feel? This is very nice. It's great so for audio much, listeners so too. It's more comfortable. It's more social as well, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that's it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we had that in-depth dive into our into all the effort we put into you said. I'm sorry we didn't match your enthusiasm. You didn't set us up. We didn't. I didn't know this was coming though. Oh, it's part of the fun. Okay. Mm. In today's episode of the podcast, we're going to be discussing the latest from the Dutch election, which took place yesterday at time of recording, and also talking more broadly about what this means for politics in Europe and Europe's rightward shift. We're also going to be covering our underreported stories of the week, and of course, doing the world leader leaderboard. Actually, the idea of Europe's kind of shift to the right is something that we covered in our newspaper, which I have right in front of me. In fact, I have quite a lot of copies right in front of me. In fact, we have copies everywhere. Like if you look over, we're we're over here. We've got so many. They arrived this afternoon. We are very happy with them. We've talked about them a bunch, obviously. Um, But now we've actually got like thousands of them. It's very exciting. (laughs) And we're looking forward to sending you one. So if you would like a copy, then you can place an order at tldrnews.co.uk and if you do, if you place an order in the first 24 hours of this podcast going live and use code TLDR podcasts, you'll get 30% off your order. That's wow. the highest discount we've offered anywhere. And it's only for the first 24 hours and it's only for podcast listeners. After the first 24 hours, the code will still exist, but it will drop back down to 20% like all of the other codes. So make sure to order in the first 24 hours. Uh, thank you for your support generally. And thanks for watching the podcast. That's enough talking about that. Let's get right into the podcast. Zach, let's start with your underreported story of the week. So I was a bit torn on my underreported story, but I think it is going to be the German coalition, the fact that it's decided indefinitely halt its vote on the on the annual budget. Mm-hmm. And this is a consequence of a ruling by the German sort of constitutional courts, like the highest court in Germany uh, on Wednesday, that basically the current coalition had a plan to use sort of 60 billion euros worth of spare COVID funding Mm -hmm. and redirect that towards climate finance. And the constitutional court ruled that this was inconsistent with Germany's debt break. And Germany's Mm -hmm. debt break is basically this thing that came into force in 2009, uh, basically during the euro crisis, Mm -hmm. that limits annual budget deficits to 0.35% of GDP. And that is tiny. I mean, like, vast majority of developed countries at the moment are running higher budget deficits. I mean, America's due to run one that's 20 times bigger than that relative to GDP in the next couple of years. Um, And this is massive news for a couple of reasons. I mean, one, if the German Constitutional Court holds such a strict line, it really means Germany's fiscal space is very, very limited. And that was fine when Germany's economy was really, really booming. Mm -hmm. But now that things are slowing down a little bit, with that little fiscal space... The, the politics just become really, really difficult really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think you already see that, you know, in, in the way that German politics is sort of distorting and contorting itself. Um, but the other reason is that it restarts this internal dispute within the coalition, which was, there's always this ideological tension, but it's essentially between the FDP, the sort of like hardcore 
a very fiscally conservative neoliberal party mm-hmm. and the SPD and the, the Greens, who are both a bit more liberal when it comes to spending, especially the Greens, because the Greens think you need to borrow and spend loads of money to fund the climate transition, and rightly so. Mm-hmm. Um, and the FDP uh, sort of taken this as like proof that they were right all along to resist all the spending. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's even been a motion within the FDP. I'm not sure quite how it's panned out, but it's essentially the membership have suggested, or a significant fraction of membership suggested, that they should just ditch the coalition now. Sure. And the FDP, sort of the, the elite level, are pushing back against this. But you can see how this is not just going to strain German politics generally, but also mm-hmm. the incumbent coalition. Interesting. I think uh, we're planning a video on the topic potentially soon, right? We are, yeah, I think so. So yeah. if you want to dive deeper, TLDR EU will be hosting more content about that. Also, <laughs> and this wasn't planned, you were just talking, <laughs> the newspaper has a lovely section here written by YouTuber Marvin Neumann all about the German coalition, how it's doing two years in. It breaks down like a t- halfway review of the coalition. So if you want a broader take, it's in the newspaper, Co TLDR Podcasts. Rory, are you going to talk about something as your underreported story? It's also in the newspaper, so I can do a dumb um, plug. It's similar. There's probably something you okay, can get I'll from start, it. So you start talking, yeah. I'll start um, flicking through. I think my underreported story <laughs> might be the first update we've had to an underreported story. So wow. it's an underreported mm. update. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I spoke about um, what's happening in Syriza, which is this left-wing party in Greece, mm-hmm. and how they kind of elected a new leader. And uh, it was quite a surprise because he came out of nowhere. He's a former Goldman Sachs banker, mm-hmm. um, lived in America, lived and worked in America. Um, and I think at the time we said, you know, that's interesting that that kind of party has elected that person. I wonder what will happen. Yeah. Well, a few weeks later, or maybe a, a month later or something, we kind of know what's happened now. The party okay. is in decline. Um, <laughs> people are splitting off from it. The left-wing factions are, you know, furious, mm-hmm. going their own way. And the party, which came second in the uh, Greek election, which does feature oh. in the newspaper... Uh, don't know what page. Um, keep going, keep going. Yeah, so so having come second and having been the kind of the left-wing party in Greece for the last decade or so, they have now fallen in the polls to third place behind PASOK, which was Greece's kind of previous mainstream mm-hmm. left-of-centre party, which effectively like almost entirely evaporated back in 2012 following the Greek debt crisis and everything, but has slowly started building its way back up. And now they've overtaken Syriza, which mm-hmm. is kind of falling apart at the moment, um, which I just think is an interesting dynamic. You know, 10 years, 10 years on from, uh, from that big realignment in Greek politics, it's kind of going back to what it was. Interesting. Very you interesting. Found the I found what I think might be the article. Yes, it is. It's this in one. That, in that thing there. This is a long-form piece written by you, Rory, actually, yeah. about the various elections that defined mm. Europe this year, which obviously includes Greece as well as a number of other countries, yeah. including Spain, which we'll be talking about yes. in today's EU video. Thank you so much for your underreported stories and for the opportunity to promote the newspaper Excellent. again. I'm sure we'll get them. many more opportunities. Oh, TLDRnews.com, yeah. <laughs> not even the right address. <laughs> anyway, um, let's move on to our main story today, which is the Dutch election, which happened on Wednesday. Um, Rory, you wrote our video that's coming out Friday morning, yeah. which hopefully people have already seen. So do you want to give us a quick rundown of what happened in the Netherlands specifically, and then we can yeah. broaden out to Europe as a whole? Um, so firstly, I'll just... Shout out Hugo, co-wrote mm-hmm. it with Hugo, one of our EU contributors. Um, effectively, the big story from from the results is uh, the PVV, which is the party of Gert Wilders. Mm-hmm. This kind of, he's a bit of a staple of Dutch politics for, I don't know, two decades now. He's very anti-Islam, anti-immigration. He is very populist. Um, and his party won a big, big victory mm-hmm. uh, on Wednesday. Um, so... 
there's 150 seats in the in the House of Representatives in the, in the Netherlands. His party won about 37, I think, mm-hmm. which is way ahead of uh, the second place party, which is the Centre Left Alliance. They won about, I think, 25. Um, so obviously he doesn't have a majority. That never really happens in in the Netherlands. Yeah. He's just got a big uh, kind of lead on on the second place party. Um, and then the previously the ruling party for the last 13 years, formerly under Mark Rutte, now under. Dylan Yeshegos Zagarius, I think is how you say it. It sounded confident. <laughs> yeah, um, I need Jan in here to kind of coach me with yeah, it. But, yeah. Um, yeah, so under new leadership, um, they fell to third place. Uh, so effectively, they, it's the first time in more than a decade that they haven't won an election. Wow. Um, third place with about 24 seats, I think. Um, so it's this big, big... <coughs> it's this big, big shift to the right or to the far right, mm-hmm. um, if you want to label him as that, um, that people hadn't really been expecting because the polling um, before the election, it had kind of been a dead heat between four parties, mm-hmm. including um, the PVV, Gert Wilders won, um, the VVD, which is Mark Rutter's, formerly Mark Rutter's party, sure. and then the Green Labour Alliance and uh, this new party called New Social Contract, which was led by this popular uh, kind of slightly anti-establishment politician called Peter Omtzigt, who um, formed it just like, I don't know, a month or, or yeah, a month and a bit before the election. Mm-hmm. So those four parties have all ended up on more than 20 or more seats. So they are a cut above the rest of the other small parties. Sure. There's 11 other parties wow. with less than 10 seats. Sure. Um, but those are the big four. So now so now we're at the point where you've got Gert Wilders, who will control the biggest section of seats in the lower house um, and kind of effectively is the one, you know, the favourite to become prime minister now. But it's not that simple because for years his party has been kind of ostracized because of its extreme views and because of his extreme views um he's never he's never won an election he's never been in a coalition um but now at this point where you can't really see a coalition being able to to form without him in it Mm -hmm. and given that he's the largest party you know it would make sense that he he or someone from his party would be the prime minister um despite the other parties having said you know we don't want to work with this person they were kind of vague about it mm-hmm. before and um, the other center right and right wing parties it looks like they're going to have to do that basically mm-hmm. so for the first time yeah ever he has won an election and it looks like he could be on course to become dutch prime minister all after a long a long formation period yes yeah what do we make of this what, do, what does this mean for the netherlands what does this mean more broadly oh, i think that it's sort of obvious and it's, it's obvious because it's right um, take is that this is part of like the general rightwards shift across Europe. Although I think it's probably a bit of an oversimplification to say rightward shift. I think especially on cultural issues, it mm-hmm. does feel like you're shifting to the right. Do you have any sense of what Gert Wilders' economic policies he's, are? Are they right wing? He's or? a bit mixed. So on things like he wants to lower tax, for example. Yeah. But also he he wants um to raise the minimum wage. He wants to lower social rent. Um so he's not like a massive ultra right wing does he push back his green policies as well sometimes? yeah he wants to keep the coal power stations open and he they often to, frame that as a sort of like cost of living policy yeah, it's about yeah. like sort of reducing cost burdens for poor people but yeah culturally he's very very much on the far right but yeah. economics you know kind of across the spectrum really yeah but i do think that's the, that, that that's probably the most obvious take which is just that this is an, mm. yet another case of a sort of culturally right wing party doing pretty well in europe the other thing i think interesting there which i didn't know until you just mentioned that is that it's another example of a cordon sanitaire mm. failing mm. Or, or even being sort of like um, counterproductive. Yeah. Because, you know, you do see... Do you explain what that means? A cordon sanitaire, I mean, it's the French term because it's what the French parties used to do to Le Pen mm-hmm. and her predecessor. Um, it's when sort of mainstream parties or establishment parties come together and agree not to include more extremist parties in their coalition. And the idea is to sort of... That by doing that, you won't sort of like normalise or 
you won't popularize uh, sort of extremist opinions. You'll keep them to the fringes of politics. Um, and that seemed to have some success in the 20th century, but especially in the last like decade or so, that really hasn't worked. And mm -hmm. then actually, I mean, Germany is the most acute example of this at the moment, um, that when establishment parties sort of rule out coalitions with these like anti-establishment parties, that only burnishes their anti-establishment credentials. Sure. And actually sort of like, it, it proves their point. They say like, oh, the establishment parties won't listen to your opinion. You know, you're sort of like... Uh, voiceless minority, and that energizes their supporters. And then, when the cordon sanitaire comes into force, that only validates their like mm -hmm. um, their take. And so, yeah, I mean, this is another example of the cordon sanitaire ultimately failing. And again, I think the most glaring example of this at the moment is in Germany, where the AfD, who previously, I mean, Merkel specifically ruled out um, uh, forming a coalition with them, and all of the other parties as well, because Merkel was the one on the sort of centre right, who was the most obvious coalition partner. Mm -hmm. As the AfD have surged in the polls. The Christian Democrats have sort of slightly softened their position on the Cordon Sanitaire. I think Mertz said that he might form a coalition with them, and they form coalition at the regional level. Mm -hmm. um, and, yeah, and you see that, that <coughs> dynamic playing out across mm -hmm. Europe. There was an interesting take about the Dutch election, and I've seen people. some people agree, that some people disagree, but um, the new leader of the VVD uh, had kind of left the door slightly open during the election campaign, saying they w she would be willing to go into coalition negotiations with... Mm -hmm. Gert Wilders, um, something that Mark Rutter had always kind of ruled out yeah. or like kind of um, implied that he ruled out. Um, and some people have said that by leaving that door open, it kind of legitimized his party and you get to the point where voters will think, well, why would I vote for this party when he actually has a chance to go in government? I'm just going to give him my support mm -hmm. now. So it's almost the reverse of if you do neglect them, that they can kind of boost their yeah. well, credentials versus legitimizing them. Like, I don't know what the correct kind of breakdown there is but um well i mean presumably it comes with ways presumably that yeah. her decision to sort of like soften her position is in part a symptom yeah. or was in part a symptom of gert wilders's rising popularity yeah. she just realized that she couldn't form a coalition yeah but that is there, there's an interesting thing that the election is it was a snap election an mm -hmm. early election because uh, the previous government fell and the ruling vvd party effectively let the government fall over the issue of asylum and migration because they figured that that would be a better thing to fight an election on than the nitrogen issue, which was yes. this big thing that led to the Farmers uh, Citizen Party um, had their kind of rise and fall. Um, but that also seems to have backfired because they, they let their government fall on, on migration and asylum. So you have an election campaign that's dominated by that. Mm -hmm. And who's the kind of the most hard line on that? Gert Wilders. Yeah. And he can kind of use that to just shoot up in the polls. I think that is interesting as well because... I think that's sort of incongruous with previous European experience. I mean, what I basically mean by that is that a lot of establishment parties have seen the electoral advantage to take on anti-immigrant positions. And they've basically squeezed out the anti-establishment parties by just copying those anti-immigrant positions. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like Denmark is the most like obvious example of this. And it's a center-left social democratic party. And they're in power and they were losing votes to, uh, they called the the Danish Democrats, I think the some Sweden Democrats. Sweden Democrats it's not them. Yeah. It's, anyway, they were, they were sure. losing votes to a sort of more right-wing anti-immigrant <coughs> uh, Danish party. And they reacted, even though they're in the centre-left economically, by taking a really harsh line on immigration. That successfully mm -hmm. squeezed them out and they're still in, they squeezed out the sort of anti-establishment, anti-immigrant party. Yeah. And the Social Democrats are still in power there. Uh, and the fact that the VVD, even though they were trying to basically squeeze Gertrude mm. out, they failed to do so. I don't know what that says about like Dutch politics, but yeah. it's not I, a good sign for established I, parties. I think a lot of it is the fact that they were in power for 13 years. And I mean, we see this in this country. There's only so much you can do. You can say, let's have a fresh start. But, you know, your mm. party's been in power for so long. People sure. kind of are tired. 
That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. And for Europe more generally, we've already touched on this, what this could mean from like an electoral level. What does this tell us about the shift that we've already mentioned that is covered in the newspaper of that rightward shift? Is this... Is this kind of escalating that issue, do you think? Or is this just another symptom of the same thing we've been seeing for a while? Well, I think it's important not to overstate the case when you're talking about the rightward shift. I mean, obviously in the UK, the polling is very good for Labour right now. I think mm -hmm. we still count as Europe, even if not the EU. Poland, obviously, you had Tusk winning mm -hmm. against law and justice and Confederation performing pretty badly. Ireland, it looks like Sinn Féin, who are sort of on the left Irish poll, that's going to win there. You've got Spain, where Sanchez is still holding on. I mean, the Portuguese government's collapsed, but they yeah. were sort of centre-left as well. Um, but I do think that the the sort of consistent thread that runs through all of these, like, rightward shift elections is, is immigration. And it is the mm. fact that immigration is becoming more of a sort of a, a priority for European voters, but also that the European voters who care about it tend to take pretty um, right-wing positions on it. Yeah. Um, and I think the, the problem is particularly acute in the EU because of this difficult uh, interaction between the EU's external and its internal migration policies. Mm -hmm. uh, and the problem is that when you have, you know, if basically individual European states don't trust the frontier states, the border states in the EU to effectively police their borders, that puts pressure on the Schengen area and mm -hmm. the freedom of movement within the EU because then... Countries, I mean, a good example is countries, someone like France gets yeah. stressed out that the Italians aren't going to police their border effectively and those migrants are going to flow through via Schengen mm -hmm. into France. Um, and so th that's why the problem becomes particularly acute in Europe. Uh, it's that difficult interaction between those two things. But I think the problem is sort of, uh, it's, it's becoming more pertinent across the world. Uh, and I do think that's just a function of higher migration rates. Yeah. Um, and there was a sort of a lull during COVID, but post-COVID... Uh, migration rates have just gone up across the world and especially acutely in, well, in, I mean, in the UK, actually, that's the most mm. acute, but especially acutely in, in Europe. And I think migration rates or irregular migration and regular migration, but irregular migration is up. The issue of migration is an interesting one because it's, as you say, it's kind of escalating from the frontier countries. That's the right word, right? Yeah, you can so get It's escalating from the frontier countries towards other kind of more protected nations, at least geographically. And I think when you look at the newspaper, <laughs> we have this lovely, lovely graph. Can we cut to it, Ben? And these different countries that we're flagging that are shifting right are Germany, Italy, Austria, and Poland. And of those, it's only really Italy that is a core country for first entry, right? So it's interesting to see this shift, not only in the places that are directly affected by those first entries, that kind of initial hit of migration, but the fact that this isn't all driven by migration, as you say, but that is a key issue in a lot of these countries are shifting right, and that these aren't even necessarily the ones that are most directly affected or not by the first round of migrants. Countries like Germany have yeah, yeah. taken on a ton of migrants. But no, I think yeah, Germany is a really good example, isn't yeah. it? Where the, the, actually there's a pretty strong correlation between mm. like sort of aggregate migrant inflow into Europe and how many end up in Germany. Yeah. Just because it's such a desirable place for migrants. Yeah. Um, and I'm interested from your perspective, Rory, what does this mean for kind of, as we're talking about the integration of Europe, where these migrants are moving, that this is a point of tension. What does this mean for Europe and the EU more generally, do you think? I think one of the impacts will be just his victory will bolster the kind of similar movements in other e uh, eu countries you look at who congratulated him who was first to kind of mm -hmm. celebrate and congratulate um gert wilders on his victory he had marine le pen victor orban um the leader of vox in in spain i think yeah. and uh, various other people and uh, you kind of see how this these are these are kind of nationalistic parties and individuals who are opposed to 
EU, further EU integration, mm -hmm. but they all, all also are quite united yeah. in a way. It's um, uh, so so yeah. We'll see if 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 this trend kind of continues in those other countries as well. But um, Gert Wilders kind of it, well his party i should say mm -hmm. I mean, it's difficult because when you talk about him and his party he kind of is the party sure there's not many other uh kind of comparative things where it's <coughs> so centered around that one person because he's sure. been around for like 20 something years i think um but anyway he is he's opposed to to further eu integration mm -hmm. he, he wants to kind of effectively uh end the uh free move well free movement of workers into the netherlands without mm -hmm. permits kind of as part of the schengen area and um, he also wants to make sure that the uh, a migration pact in Europe is kind of very uh, effectively doesn't just mean people end up in the Netherlands. Sure. Um, he, so, so any any chance of uh, collaboration and further integration in Europe with Gert Wilders leading the Netherlands is going to be difficult, I mm -hmm. think. Um, but on the flip side, oh, I should say he's also very. Uh, he wants to leave his party. Wants to leave the European Union, and the okay. manifesto said they want to have an exit. You know, Netherlands okay. exit referendum. Sure. Uh, I don't think that's likely, given that he'll be in a coalition. Mm -hmm. And he's also said that. Um, He's effectively expressed willingness to compromise on a lot of his views mm -hmm. um, in order to try and form a coalition. So I think he recognizes just how uh, outside of the kind of mainstream he is. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's the, the, that kind of normalization of those views. Now that cordon sanitaire has gone, you can see those other parties if they think, well, this is this is electorally successful. Yeah. Uh, why don't we kind of pick up on these things? Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, you, I mean, and yeah. also I was going to say, I mean. You, you, it's true, of course, that he is sort of outside the political mainstream in Europe. But actually, when it, when it comes to immigration, uh, he is, I mean, mm. that is actually quite a mainstream position. I mean, there does seem to be an emerging consensus that, uh, at least among sort of elite European politicians, mm. that you, we do need to restrict immigration. I mean, again, mm. obviously, I think lots of Europeans are very uncomfortable with his sort of Islamophobic rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But actually, I mean, you see it here, we talk about Denmark, how the left have pivoted around yeah. immigration, but you see it's a little bit here as well, where Keir Starmer is talking about stopping the boats. Mm -hmm. You see it in Germany, where Schultz gave it into the yeah. Spiegel, talking up deportations. You see Macron with his new immigration bill and the fact that his interior minister, Darmanin, is basically saying, yeah, I'll take all of these sort of more restrictive amendments that Labour Republica have put onto it. Um, and I do think that this is like a, sure in many ways he's like further to the right but it is just mm. part of this sort of emerging consensus mm. um and i think it's in part just simply the fact that actually immigration is a really difficult issue for europeans and i don't think it's as simple as just like oh you need more restrictive limits on immigration um because you there's so many competing demands i mean like you have the legal issues of staying within sort of like international like refugee obligations mm -hmm. uh and then you also have the sort of like the the politics are obviously difficult because there is quite a lot of clamor for just like um, a lot of basically a lot of the electorate wants more strict immigration. But at the same time, the electorate has quite a schizophrenic attitude to immigration because if you poll them on individual things, you say like, do you want less immigration overall? They say yes. Mm -hmm. But then you say like, okay, where do you want to stop immigration? Do you want to stop healthcare workers? Do you want to stop social care workers? Do you want to stop like uh, agricultural laborers? They say no to all of those things. So the competing political demands quite difficult. And then there's also the economics in that a lot of Europe is aging. And mm -hmm. if Europe wants to basically maintain its dependency ratio, you know, keep a young enough population to afford the quality of public services we've grown used to, then it does need to find that from somewhere or it needs to somehow uh, stimulate its own sort of like domestic fertility rate. Mm -hmm. um, so I just think it is, it, it's, it's a sort of, it's a crisis. It's basically just a really difficult policy area and it interacts with so many difficult questions. Uh, and so... I think they are, it's understandable that there's more focus being paid to it, but I do worry that the sort of like quite simplistic 
we just need to cut down yeah. immigration mm -hmm. or like put a wall up. You know, there was talk about basically a naval blockade outside Europe and the yeah. North African coast. That, that's just not a solution. You do need to somehow find the best approach for us. Um, I think it's time to move on to the world leader leaderboard, um, which today is all the way over there. Whoa. Wow. Magic. <laughs> magic is in magical, not I'm a 40-year-old and I'm using magic as like a adjective. Yeah, okay. Okay, just enough. clarify. Yeah, yeah. I'm still young. <laughs> I promise. Um, okay, so as always, we're adding new people to the world leader leaderboard or we're moving people around. This is our ranking of who's doing best and worst in the world right now. And as with every week, each of the two guests gets the opportunity to move someone up or down on the board. So let's start with losers of the week this week, and let's start with Rory. My loser of the week is already on the board, so okay, I'll get up and move him down. Okay, um, I better speak into my microphone. My loser of the week is the Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Ooh. Kishida. Um, not for any, he's. I think he's. I can't. Just too mirrored. Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, not for any one specific reason, but his polling has just been absolutely plummeting recently. He's got. Uh, I think the morning consult poll had him on something like 16% approval, uh, which is pretty poor. Yeah. Um, he's on lower approval than his predecessor was when his predecessor announced that he wouldn't kind of run for re-election <laughs> of the leadership. Um, and when I was researching this, I found out there's a, a kind of... It's called... Um, oh, I'm going to have to look it up. Bear with me. It's called Aoki's Law. Okay. Um, it's not like a... You know, it's not a law. It's like a sure. kind of yeah, rule yeah. of thumb kind of thing um, where... The, the LDP, the ruling party in Japan, if the prime minister's, if the cabinet approval rating plus the uh, polling number for the party mm -hmm. is long, <laughs> the cumulative of that yeah. uh, is on less than 50, yeah. um, then it's time for the prime minister to step aside, apparently. Ah. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, it's obviously not enforced, but it's a kind of indicator of if, if someone is, is in a bad way and he's getting pretty close to that. Okay, so um, he could be on his way out. That's something to look out for, yeah. Interesting. Japanese politics is wild. It really the is. The fact that it's yeah. a one-party state, and mm. and yet you have approval ratings that low, but, but no, no, no one thinks I'll vote for someone else. But also there's no... Well, they did try. It was yeah. the, the opposition had their stint, I think, in yeah. the early 2010s. Am I getting that right? And they did even worse, and their poll ratings mm. quickly dropped. Mm. I mean, it's one of those weird ones where it's, it's quite a good demonstration of some of the faults of democracy is that when you've had one party in charge of the sort of like state machinery mm -hmm. for so long, making changes is, is really difficult. There's this enormous incumbency advantage. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's wild. Who's your loser of the week, Zach? My loser of the week is Olaf Scholz. Olaf. Um, <clears throat> poor Olaf. I, I mean, Olaf's approval ratings, I'm not going to call him Olaf. Scholz's <laughs> approval ratings are pretty measly as well. But I, it's for the reason mentioned in the unreported story. It yeah. is this debt break. And I think this is a real issue for him, both sort of within his coalition and in the German electorate more widely. And I think that, I think quite a lot of commentators underestimate quite how difficult it's going to be to literally, as a, as a political entity, survive the 2020s without fiscal space, sure. especially when it's a sort of slightly self-imposed limit. Mm. Um, and I think that, especially this is especially true in Germany, where I think because they've had quite a long time of running pretty hefty surpluses and having a really strong economy, mm -hmm. they don't think that having a debt break is all that difficult. Mm -hmm. But I think if you just imagine the German economy is sort of going into the same place as let's just say like the French or the British economy mm -hmm. and then try and imagine sort of British politics with a 0.35% annual deficit limit. Yeah. It just becomes immensely difficult really, really quickly. And I think Germans are a bit complacent about that. I think the debt break is such a weird thing. Like the fact that it's actually just quite a recent thing that was introduced to the yeah. constitution, but it's treated with so much like 
reverence. Hmm. Well, I think that is a function of yeah. the, the narrative that emerged during the debt crisis. I mean, I don't think the German political class, so much so as the media class, is responsible for this, but the narrative that emerged was sort of prudent, sensible Central European states hmm. uh, bailing out irresponsible... You know, the, the Greeks yeah, and the Spaniards. Borrowers, and the Greeks and the Spaniards. Well, yeah. um, and I think that narrative was always misplaced. I think it was more a function of sort of like, I'm not going to get into this now, it's too complicated, but mm. like essentially like the euro and different exchange rates and yeah. uh, the way banks borrow between countries. But the, yeah, uh, I think that that is going to be really, really difficult for basically anyone on the German left, mm. frankly, any German, any German government. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Olaf on his way down. Yeah. Sat him. right next to both of yours have pushed down oh, yeah. to the second to bottom level. We're getting slightly. We're stratifying away from the middle. Um Rory, who is your winner of the week? Um it's kind of a boring one, but it is none other than Gert Wilders for winning the Dutch election and that possibly becoming fair. the next Prime Minister. I'll let you I'll do the honors. Yeah. If there's room. There's not really. Explain that. Go for it. Oh, sorry. Really need to, I guess. Yeah, I mean, he 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 won the election. He's gone from being a, uh, you know, a, a I don't know if pariah is the right word, but someone who yeah. was shouting from the outside and kept out of government to someone who is now in pole position to lead a government. Oddly enough, I think you could also we could. Plot, I was going to say you should take Mark Rutte off the wall, but mm. I think is he's he got wall? space to go up, isn't he? Uh, top top Where? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The very top. Next to Starmer. No, that's, um, that's, that's the Swedish Prime Minister. Oh, that's oh, Christensen. No, yeah. is it? It's actually Daniel Craig wearing glasses. <laughs> and his, uh, his thing. Oh, Hopefully say, that meme is still relevant. Yeah. Oh, no, you're right. It definitely isn't. But it, I see the. it does look like him from this angle, yeah. for sure. Oh, well, just completely take back. I, I just, just cut that bit. That's going to be entirely right. Oh, but the Daniel, oh, Daniel Craig, Craig joke. Oh, okay, keep it. Fine. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, I'm up then, aren't I? Who's my? You're up. My person going up is unfortunately. Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately. That betrays my biases, but it's Donald Trump. Oh. Um, because the polling does suggest, with with caveats about third parties, the polling does currently suggest that Trump is enjoying a, a sort of widening lead over Biden. And I think there are some pretty pretty difficult. Well, there are some there are some reasons for that, and I think. Uh, they all suggest that actually it'll be quite hard for Biden to recover. I don't think Biden has received any credit for the way he's handled the Israel crisis, uh, despite the fact that I think it, within the relevant political constraints, he did pretty well. I mean, he avoided regional escalation uh, and he has sort of pushed the Israelis into finally agreeing to a ceasefire. Um, but also, I think the economy is really difficult for Biden because mm. the, despite the fact the American economy has done, phenom I mean, really phenomenally well, you compare it to any other developed economy if no one quite knows the figures yet but there's a good chance it'll even beat china in terms of like aggregate gdp and it almost definitely will in terms of what i want to describe as like productive gdp sure. growth. um and yet the general sentiment amongst the american electorate is that the economy is doing really badly for me and that is despite real wage growth and it's this really really odd sort of psychological effect whereby even if your wages outstrip inflation mm. If prices are going up, you're still grumpy because you, in general, individuals take credit for their for their wage increases, sure. but they're grumpy at the government for price increases. Interesting. It yeah, really, that makes really sense. interesting. So basically, it doesn't really matter if wages keep up with inflation, uh, especially if they're not set in some way by the government as they used to be in like the 70s and mm. 80s. Um, if inflation is going up steeply, especially in certain products that are really psychologically noticeable, so 
even if like, for example, house prices go up quite, or like, um, like your insurance goes up mm. by 20%, because one sum, you don't really notice as much as like if eggs go up, because you buy eggs the whole time. Sure. So you have a sort of mental log of how much eggs cost. But Biden is really suffering from that in that actually US inflation rates are not that bad, mm. but they're in really, really noticeable areas. Eggs is genuinely one of them. Mm. And even though US wage growth and the US GDP growth has been really strong, mm. The electorate just thinks the government's fault for the prices going up. And Trump is benefiting from that. Trump is really benefiting, yeah. Oh, Trump's yeah. moved to the middle of the board. He's in the neutral zone yeah, next to Ramaswamy and... Oh, that's the... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Nicole Pashinyan. Yeah. Uh, Nicole Pashinyan, who should probably be going down, unfortunately. But we'll work, about that we'll time. work it out. Mm. Yeah. Um, thank you both. On the note of working that out, just a heads up. This podcast is soon, if you're watching on YouTube, it's soon going to be moving away from this channel. This channel is about to be rebranded and the podcast is going to be moved both. This is provisional, but we're working in the open. It's being moved. Also, my hands are so dirty, I've just noticed, from like no, from stuff. moving newspapers and stuff. So don't worry about that. <laughs> I'm not ill or something. Well, not because of my hands. Um, we are moving the podcast to both the UK channel and the global channel, we think. The podcast yeah. is oh. going to split. We're going to do two TLDR podcasts a week. If you're listening to the audio feed, nothing will change. You'll just get double the podcast. Have we just committed to doing two a week? I thought it was maybe once every two Once every week. Okay, two a week it it's is. It's two a week. Two a week it is. Okay. It might not be. It might not be. This is, again, <laughs> provisional. So we'll, the video version will be split across the main UK and main global channel. So you'll find it there. So if you want both versions in video, make sure you subscribe to both of those channels. And the podcast feed will be staying the same. Essentially, though, why I'm telling you this, and this isn't going to happen immediately, it'll be happening soon, is that at some point before that transition happens, we're going to have a special episode of the podcast where we run through the board, refresh, reset. Everyone's get the opportunity to vote to move up or down everyone on the board and to vote to remove people from the board. It's a board special. It's going to be incredible. And then once we've done that, then we'll move to the new channels and we'll have reset and it'll be clean for the new viewers who don't watch at the moment but might once it's moved. That's the update. So the deep in a podcast that no one, how deep? Oh, like half an hour at least mm. in, even with edits. Um, so that's the update if you're committed enough to get here. Um, we likely won't have changed by next week, so we'll see you in the same place next week for next week's episode of TLDR Podcast. <laughs> I said next week a few too many times, sorry, I think. <laughs>